You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, editor-at-large at The Diplomat and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Delighted to be joined today by Katie Putz, The Diplomat's managing editor and resident Central Asia expert. How's it going today, Katie? It's going good. Really glad to have you back on the podcast. Um, we don't usually get the opportunity to talk about Central Asia too frequently, uh, but I think this time we have uh, some breaking news from the region that really merits coverage. Um, I'm certainly very interested in learning a little bit more about what's been going on in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, I've been I've been reading some of the news, but uh, you'll forgive me for being a little bit confused by what exactly is going on, what we know, what we don't know. Um, so the whereabouts, as far as I know, of the Kyrgyz president currently remain unknown after a major power vacuum emerged after disputed parliamentary elections. But I'm not the Central Asia expert you are. So I wanted you to give us a little bit of a rundown about what exactly we know about what is happening in Kyrgyzstan. What are the stakes right now? Yeah, so uh, it's been a very interesting couple of days uh, for Kyrgyzstan. Uh, on October 4th, so this past Sunday, they held regularly scheduled parliamentary elections. Uh, and on Monday, when the election commission sort of announced the preliminary results, protests began almost instantly. And so the the commission had announced that of the 16 parties that had contested the election, only four cleared the 7% national threshold to make it into parliament. And of those two parties, each took about 24% of the vote, uh, two parties named Birimdik and Maikinim Kyrgyzstan. And the, these two parties are heavily associated with the government. Birimdik, which is itself a new party, um, included the president's brother, for example, in its party list. And then Maikinim Kyrgyzstan's list included the brother of uh, a former deputy customs head named Ryanbek Matraimov, who has been implicated in a series of massive corruption schemes that broke last November uh, that were, were put out by OCCRP, RFERL, and the local media outlet called CLOP. Mm -hmm. uh, and so th these two parties uh, winning, it was essentially a victory for the status quo. That's what my first article on, on the election called it. Um, made a lot of Kyrgyz really unhappy because they've been really unhappy with the government. So it didn't make sense that these pro-government parties would win at margins that we have not seen in any previous parliamentary elections. So it was just shocking that they did so well. Protests erupted immediately in Bishkek. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, for those who are a little less familiar, uh, has had two uh, popular revolutions uh, since it became independent after the collapse of the Soviet Union, one in 2005 and one in 2010. Uh, so 2020 seemed to be the year. Um, in addition to sort of the shock of these pro-government parties winning at a time when there's a lot of appetite in Kyrgyzstan for some change, uh, there was a lot of really credible allegations about funny business in the voting, uh, most importantly, uh, reports of vote buying at, at just a massive scale. Mm -hmm. And so Monday, these protests, which were largely peaceful and, and sort of the parties that didn't make it into the, the parliament, their supporters were in the, the main square in Bishkek and in, in a number of other cities, uh, kind of turned into chaos as evening fell, as these things do. The Kyrgyz security forces tried to clear the main square. They succeeded in doing that only to lose it later in the evening, uh, somewhere around 2 a.m. Uh, this would be October 6th now. Uh, a group of protesters breached the gates of the Kyrgyz White House, which is the office building uh, housing the president and the parliament's offices. And so we ended up with these just really incredible photographs of, of protesters smashing pictures of, of President Soranbay Zhinbakov, uh, while in the background other protesters are sipping cups of tea. It was a very Kyrgyz revolution. Um, and so 
that later that night also uh, groups of protesters or whoever went and freed a number of uh, politicians who had landed themselves in jail, most notably uh, President Almazbek Atimbaev, uh, who was jailed last year in sort of the last bit of chaos we saw in, in Kyrgyzstan uh, last that. August. Yeah. And so, and he was sentenced this past summer to 11 some years in one of his trials and was, was facing additional charges. He was freed. Uh, a former MP named Sadr Japarov was also freed. Um, Japarov had been put in jail for 11 and a half years in 2017 uh, on charges that included kidnapping a regional governor. So he's also free. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to Tuesday, um, with, on which the election commission finally annulled the parliamentary results, said, okay, we're going to do this again at some point. Um, but we've really like gone light years beyond that now. Uh, hours after being sprung from jail, Japarov was named the new prime minister by a group of parliamentarians, which was something less than a quorum. They met in a hotel in Bishkek, and Japarov apparently sort of slipped out the back door because it wasn't certain if the mob out front were supporters or not. Uh, There have been several um, so-called coordination councils that have popped up um, featuring um, the sort of most prominent of which I think features really familiar faces from Kyrgyz politics. It's it's led by uh, the leader uh, of Butun Kyrgyzstan, which is the one opposition party that did make it into the parliament according to the now annulled parliamentary elections. Um, Adrakan Madimarov. And so he heads this one um, faction that's trying to say they want to control the government. Uh, Bruce Panier, my friend at RFERL, noted that it was a group of mostly old men. Another coordination council popped up featuring some of the newer, younger politicians, uh, many former activists who had really become involved in politics over the summer um, through sort of civil society activism when the government really wasn't able to do anything about the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of civil society groups stepped in to fill that gap. Um, and so they've decided to nominate their own person for prime minister <laughs> seat, uh, a guy named Tilik Tokhtagaziev. And so at this point, Soren Bajinbekov is still president as far as I know. Um, that could change by the time this goes out. He's largely stayed out of view. He's made some video statements. His office has issued some statements. Um, He supported annulling the parliamentary results, and he said he's willing to work with whoever. He's essentially trying to stay in his office because we've, you know, now there's a lot of talk about him resigning or being impeached, and we've just come so far from what the original protests on Monday were about uh, that, you know, we have two-ish prime ministers maybe, um, and a couple of different sort of factions of power. We have a president who's not really, who, it, there's a lot of hesitation, I think, on a part of a lot of curious politicians to kind of wait until they see which way the wind blows to throw their lot in with the yeah. side that's going to win. Um, but so as of now, it's really unclear what happens next. Um, there's a lot to talk about. So I hope that was both brief enough and, and, comprehensive enough to kind of bring people up to speed yeah absolutely i i you know i'm gonna let you catch your breath for a second because that was (laughs) that was a lot to go over um i mean i think i think it'll be helpful uh you know just to get a sense so you know uh kyrgyzstan is very often described as central asia's only democracy but of course it's it's a it's a very imperfect democracy as i think this crisis and recent ones have have (laughs) emphasized but i was wondering uh just to just maybe help listeners make a little bit more sense of the context for this um 
how how would you describe democracy in Kyrgyzstan? I mean, has it um, what have been the real uh, challenges to the practice of of democracy? I mean, Central Asia generally as a region has not been ripe for, you know, people deciding their own leaders. Uh, let's say, um, how has Kyrgyzstan fared? So Kyrgyzstan, uh, I would say, still remains Central Asia's only real democracy. Uh, it has a lot of flaws within that democracy that are, are worth assessing, but it's sort of, you know, if you're going to group countries into to baskets, uh, there's the other four countries of Central Asia are mostly in the same kind of authoritarian basket where there, there's one leader, we all know who that is, mm -hmm. uh, and the likelihood of that changing unless that leader wants to do something else with his life. It, you know, we know they're in charge. Kyrgyzstan has always been a little bit more fluid. It has a more open media space. Again, not perfect, uh, it, but it has a more open media space. It has a more open civil society space. It has this, this established history of uh, protest in a way that the other Central Asian states don't have this same sense in the, the civil sort of space that you can go out onto the street and overthrow your government if you really want to. Um, the Kyrgyz have done this twice. And so Kyrgyzstan is not sort of holding to the same sort of um, presidential politics. It also likes to advertise pretty widely. It is the only Central Asian state that is a parliamentary republic. Now, I, it's kind of a weird parliamentary presidential hybrid in my non-political science expert opinion, because you still have this very important presidential figure in Kyrgyz politics, but there is also a parliament that does legally have a lot of powers in of itself. So it's just a different animal than the other countries in Central Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, it does, however, a lot of the problems I think that it has in its politics are rooted in, in you know, politics still remains a uh, an arena of a lot of um, individual figures. And so you know, of the 16 parties that ran in this election, a lot of them were new, a lot of them were rebranded. Uh, the parties that had the most seats in the previous parliament weren't, weren't running, but their MPs had had done which is, uh, what is called colloquially um, changed shoes and joined other parties in order to run on their tickets. So parties are really these weak um, trappings, these weak vehicles for personality. So there's a lot of elite politics behind the democracy of Kyrgyzstan. But there's also agitation for sort of an injection of new faces. And, and that was sort of part of the hope of this parliamentary election is that you would get some of that in parliament. And when it didn't turn out that way, um, that was really, I think, shocking and carried people into the streets. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's I think also really helpful. Um, you know, so I've been I've been reading I've been reading um, several reports um, on what's happening in Kyrgyzstan. You know, I particularly like yours when you wrote that uncertainty is king at the moment in the country, and I think that's very apt as as I think you've just also emphasized on the podcast. But I want to ask you, so you know, something I keep seeing is. Um, you know, Jean Bikov is often described as, you know, Kyrgyzstan's pro-Russia president. And there was this attempt by, uh, I guess, a lot of media to kind of make the geopolitical stakes of what's happening in Kyrgyzstan um, apparent in a lot of coverage. I'm wondering how much of this is overstated. I mean, how much of this is, is purely a domestic story for Kyrgyzstan? Um, and, you know, if you had to sort of project ahead, I know there's a lot of uncertainty uh, do you see any any serious geopolitical stakes either either within the Central Asia region in terms of Kyrgyzstan's relations with its neighbors or in terms of uh, its relationship with the great powers, uh, most prominently China and Russia? Uh, as it stands now, the answer is no. Um, 
the the factors in this revolution, if that's what we come to call it, are almost entirely local. This is about domestic politics. This is about domestic frustration with the domestic government. Um, Jean Bakov has been categorized as, as a pro-Russian president. Um, I don't think anybody could necessarily have called his predecessor Adam Bayev an anti-Russia president. So mm -hmm. you have, you know, I, it's hard for me to imagine really anybody rising to the top at this point who's not going to, at the very least, play a game with Russia and China for that matter. You know, Kyrgyzstan, uh, for better or for worse, needs those relationships and benefits from those relationships. And, you know, the, the Kyrgyz population broadly is pro-Russian. Uh, they consume Russian media. A lot of people still speak Russian. Um, a lot of people's children go to Russia for work. Like it, it's, it, it's a relationship that's not going to be overturned um, it, overnight. Uh, by 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 any of this, um, there's certainly in the realm of possibility room for adjustment in those relationships. But but this re revolution again, if that's what we come to call it, because I don't I don't know if it's quite there. I think I also wrote this week that sort of one foot into a revolution. Yeah. Um, it's not about Russia and it's not about China. Uh, there are interesting things to be said about how Russian media depicts what's going on in Kyrgyzstan and sort of. You know the and the and also regionally how like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, sort of their medias and their leaders sort of depict what's happening in Kyrgyzstan as the thing we don't want to do. Like, look how crazy and you know nuts everything in Kyrgyzstan is. You, why would you want that to happen here? So the, there's sort of a sense sense to sort of play up the un, instability of Kyrgyzstan. But as unstable as this moment is, uh, you know, I, I think most Kyrgyz also kind of see there's you know it, it'll settle. They've, they've done this twice before. There will be a path out of it. Whether 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 the sort of pro-current uh, government and, and sort of these criminal-related corrupt groups are the ones that rise to the top would be bad for Kyrgyzstan, but it's possible whether a more reformist government comes to the top would be better for Kyrgyzstan, but we don't know if that's going to happen either. Right. Uh, whichever it is, they're going to have to play with Russia, and I just don't see it becoming that thing. I, I think, you know, international media and international observers, we really do like to kind of inject um, other countries into to issues when when we don't know all of the details of the domestic, you know, issues. Right. And so, uh, you know, just to um, just to follow up a little bit on that. Um, so, yeah, absolutely clear on the Russia China angle. But what about uh, what about the regional response? I know, you know, non interference tends to be popular in this part of the world. But have there been um, prominent reactions from Kyrgyzstan's neighbors? Um, not, not that I've seen. I believe I heard that Uzbekistan closed the border, which is pretty par for the course when there's unrest in Kyrgyzstan. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't seen strong reactions. The, the sort of non-interference remains par from the course. I think the interesting things to watch is sort of how um, state and non-state media in neighboring countries cover the protests and cover um, whatever happens in Kyrgyzstan, whether it's revolution or regime change or whatever it happens to be, it'll be interesting to see how they frame it. Because I think um, certainly for Kazakhstan, for example, they definitely, um, given Kyrgyzstan's sort of revolutionary, it's sort of cyclical revolutionary history, Kyrgyzstan gets sort of this bad reputation as being very unstable. Um, and it's partially earned, but I think it gets overplayed by by the neighbors as sort of a warning to their own domestic publics, like, 
you know, you don't want to go out in the street and try to overthrow the government. Look how crazy it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I haven't seen statements from any governments. I think they're going to wait until uh, somebody rises to the top and then they're going to do what happens every other time Kyrgyzstan has a revolution is they call up the new guy who's in charge and say, uh, I hope everything works out well. And that's, you know, <laughs> got it. Well, I think I think I think that's a good note on which to uh, wrap up this conversation. Uh, really, Katie, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast to, to quickly contextualize what is a very uncertain situation in Kyrgyzstan. I really appreciate it. It is always a pleasure. Great. Thank you. And we'll be uh, happy to have you on soon to talk more Central Asia. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.